No, we'll be from Philippians 2, um, but we'll be reading up to verse 16, not 30. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will, to, to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without faults in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ. Thank you, Rianne. That was beautifully read. Rianne is a professional actress. She used to be a part of the Rob Lacey Theatre Company, and she's exceedingly blessed because she's Welsh. <laughs> Those of you who were here yesterday morning will know that uh, RT and I are very, very, very close friends, and uh, we are sharing a chalet currently, and I asked for prayer yesterday um, for grace, and uh, I want you to know that your prayers are being answered. On the first day, I had to ask him to do the washing up, but uh, yesterday he volunteered. So it's a great, great... <laughs> say thank you, Lord, for your small mercies. I want you to give a very, very, very special welcome to Dr. R.T. Kendall. And you're praying for him. Listen. <laughs> Pray for me. He's got this problem, and he doesn't always take his tablets, and it makes it very hard. But he's a good guy. Thank you. Thank you. I was just sitting back there reflecting on some of the journeys, seriously, that RT and I have made, and I'll never forget on one occasion we were on retreat in Jerusalem, and uh, RT was invited to go down to Ramallah to meet with... Uh, President Yasser Arafat, and uh, RT said only on one condition, that I can share the gospel with him, and that Lyndon Bowring accompanies me. So we went down, we, we were under armed guard, down into Ramallah, I'll never forget that moment there with those members of the Palestinian uh, cabinet sitting as RT expounded the gospel to Yasser Arafat. So it gives me great joy now to ask you to join me in prayer for RT. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your servant. We thank you for the anointing that rests upon him. We thank you for his love for scripture and the gift you've given him to explain it and expound it. And we pray today again 
that you would give him a, a double anointing. And anoint our ears, our inner ears, as we hear your word, to know how to apply it to our lives and our marriages and our families and all our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone asked me if I would explain uh, why I go by my initials. Uh, people ask me, what does RT stand for? And I thought you should know by now, right theology. <laughs> I know you Brits have trouble, you know, with initials. Uh, but you remember you watched Dallas, had no problem with uh, JR, and you've also known about OJ across the Atlantic, which goes to show the people who go by initials are of the highest repute and, and standing. <laughs> the, the story is my dad named me after his favorite preacher, who his hero, who was Dr. R.T. Williams, and uh, dad named me Robert Tillman, but I've known nothing but R.T. since I was born. That's all I've ever known. Until we came to this country, and uh, you may or may not know this, our reason for coming to Britain in the first place uh, was to study at Oxford, and my supervisor, Dr. Barry White, first day I'm there, he says, may I call you Robert? I said, no. Well, he said, we don't like initials over here. May I call you Robert? Well, I had been told before I came over, do what your supervisor says. So I said, okay, all right. I never got used to it. After three years, I was invited to, to come to Westminster Chapel, and Dr. White actually came in to hear me preach and came back into the vestry and said, by the way, uh, Robert, don't you think you should call me Barry? I said, yes, and don't you think you should call me R.T.? <laughs> so I call him Barry. He calls me Robert. <laughs> we have in Philippians chapter 2, uh, arguably the most sublime passage in the New Testament. If the key word to understand chapter 1 was providence, the key word for today is priority. Learning the difference between what is important and what is essential, and always do the latter. So the key to joy and contentment is learning to prioritize. Or as one put it, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And to Paul, that is being more and more like Jesus. Never forget the verse, Romans 8, 29, when Paul says, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so God determined to have a family, a multitude which no man could number, and every single one of them would look just like his son. Well, the aim of Paul in the book of Philippians is to become like Jesus. Now, we're all going to be like him one day. As a matter of fact, said John, we shall be like him we shall see him as he is. So one day we will be glorified. But on this planet, we are only being sanctified. The theme today is one holy church. And sanctification is the doctrine by which we are more and more like Jesus. Nobody is perfectly like Jesus on this earth. Said 1 John 1 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So never forget this. All holiness that we have here below is a derived holiness. 
and it is by degrees. And yet, what Paul wants for us is, while we are on earth, we are more and more and more like Jesus. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the film, Amazing Grace. And uh, of course, uh, it, it's wonderful, this uh, new film, uh, the fact that John Newton was very close to William Wilberforce uh, is making people see that John Newton was famous not only for his hymn, Amazing Grace, but he also had a friend, William Cowper, who was a great hymn writer. There is a fountain filled with blood. Uh, God moves in a mysterious way as wonders to perform. And Cowper and Newton were both uh, living in Olney in Buckinghamshire. And one day, John Newton said to William Cowper, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. And so if we can say that, even though we aren't what we would like to be, we can see that God is working in us and we're seeing a little bit of progress. After all, when Paul said in chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on. It's a wonderful thing to see that though we all would like faster progress, uh, the fact that there is progress should be an encouragement. And I know that some hold to a view that if you are truly saved, you're going to be a saint immediately and everybody will know that you're different. You know, that is not always the case. I've known some who it seemed like the first day they become saints and everybody's amazed and three weeks later you never see them again. And I've known others truly converted and you think, I don't think that person's saved. Uh, it, it seems like uh, they really haven't changed that much. You might like to know that John Newton himself was converted while he was still in the slavery trade business and stayed in it for a while. Didn't seem to bother him. Later it did, and he was conscience-stricken. But at the time, no one would have thought it. And so let nobody judge you and say, well, you're not really a Christian. You wouldn't do that. Because as we just saw in the film, holiness is more than just purity, and it's developing in attitude and that is what Paul is going to emphasize in this particular chapter. And so this great passage to which I'm referring is introduced with these words, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. And so the aim of this chapter is that every person in Philippi will have the same intent. In other words, they describe those who want the same thing, to be more like Jesus, to have the same identity, that they will more and more look like, be like him. And what Paul actually does is pick up on a theme of unity, which was begun in verse 27 of chapter 1, when he says, I know that when I come, you will stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, Philippi was almost certainly Paul's favorite church, but there was a problem in it. And this really burdened Paul, and he couldn't be there to solve it. The problem was, there was a faction, at least one serious squabble in the church, two powerful women. He calls them by name at the end, Yodia and Syntyche. They each had their following, and they were talking about the other, and getting a group around them, showing we are right, they are wrong. And it was grieving the Holy Spirit it was hurting their unity. 
And so Paul is so concerned about this. So everything we're going to see today is being written because Paul knows about this problem. He's going to call attention to the very two people, even calls their names. But now he's laying the groundwork that they will have the same interest, namely, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, one of the saddest commentaries on church history is if you were to get to the bottom of so many of the theological controversies for which church history is famous, you would find that the issue probably wasn't theological at all. I never will forget when I began to see this. Some of my heroes fell in my eyes when I realized we're talking now about personality and egos. Sometimes people will use a theological rationale to cover up a moral failure. And sometimes they'll use a theological issue to cover up a bruised ego. And so often we say the issue is theological. Back in the hills of Kentucky, where I'm from, there's an old saying, when a fellow says, it ain't the money, it's the principle, it's the money. <laughs> and so if somebody says to you, my dear brother, nothing personal, it's theological, it's personal. <laughs> Paul knows this. And he's having to deal with problems with fragile egos. And for that reason, he embarks on this magnificent passage of Scripture where he begins like this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Or as the authorized version put it, let this mind be in you. What does he mean by that? Paul wants every person to imitate Jesus just as Jesus himself, who being the Son of God, and the eternal Logos in eternity was made flesh and became nothing. He turned his back on it all and became flesh. And he's saying, says Paul, if every one of you will be like that, then we will have the problem of unity solved. I would go so far as to say that if every church member would imitate truly the passage that we're going to look at today, it would solve every problem in the church. The reason is this. We will not be anxious who gets the credit, who gets noticed. Be careful that you don't offend this person. Oh, mention this. Say this about them always having to walk on eggshells. If everybody simply wanted to be more like Jesus. And so what was it about Jesus? Well, we're talking about an attitude. Uh, we're talking about a mind. What happened was a threefold decision lay behind this passage. First, there was a conscious decision taken in eternity long before the Word was made flesh. Now let me explain what I mean. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God, showing a Trinitarian relationship, and the Word was God. Verse 14 of John 1, The Word was made flesh. So, long before there was ever a star long before the sun shone in creation's morning, long before there was even a speck of dust. There was nothing but God, the Father, the Word, the Spirit. And so a, a decision was taken 
that at some point in time, the Logos, the second person of the Godhead, would take on a body. Human flesh is put like this in Hebrews chapter 10. You have given me a body. It is the word of the second person of the Godhead. Before he was called Jesus, he's simply the Logos, or you could say the eternal Son of God, is saying, you have given me a body. Now, what we all know is that this is a sublime Christological statement. And uh, some would say it is the most sublime Christological statement there is. But I don't think Paul was intending to make it so Christological that would be debated. Uh, it's famous for what is called kenotic Christology. It's based upon a particular Greek word, uh, ekenosin, that means he emptied himself. Now, we're, we read, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held onto. Now the question is, why did Paul not say simply God, who being God? But instead he said, who being in the form of God, as the authorized version put it. Well, why did he not say who being God? Well, he could have, because Paul believed that. But had he said that, he would not have been able to use the word that he uses in the next verse, which says he emptied himself, became nothing, or as the authorized version put it, became, made himself of no reputation. So Paul had to make a choice whether to emphasize what Jesus gave up or emphasize that he was God. Now Paul is not questioning whether Jesus was God. The point I'm making is that Paul talks about the form of God so that he can refer to the fact that Jesus emptied himself and took upon himself another form, the form of a servant. Now the point is that he never ceased to be God. He traded one form for another, but he was still God. There were some Swedish Lutheran theologians of the previous century uh, that came up with this kenotic theory and says that he emptied himself and that he was not God on earth. And that actually gave rise to the God is dead controversy some years ago. But Paul is showing that he was in the form of God, but now took on the form of a servant, and he never ceased to be God. Well, he didn't hold on to the glory he had before the foundation of the world. Now, the way Paul wants to apply this is to get these Philippians to be willing to give up anything that they're holding on to which is militating against this unity. Could I ask you a question? What have you had to give up in order to honor the Lord? Can you begin to match what Jesus gave up? Nobody could ever come close. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I'm going to ask you right now, what are you holding on to? What we hold on to the most, we are in danger of losing. Are you trying to hold on to your spouse, your home, your job, your money, your plans, your pet doctrine? your ego, nobody will even come close to matching what Jesus gave up. You ask, what did he have? We're talking about the second person of the Godhead before he became man was the creator. He is before all things and by him all things consist. He had majesty and glory, millions and billions and billions of angels worshiping him. 
But he took a conscious decision that one day he would take on a body and when that happened, he would always be in that body. Never again would he go back to the kind of existence that he had in eternity before the Word was made flesh. One day it became a confirmed decision. When did this decision get confirmed? You know, when we get to heaven, I think we'll all get a video replay or a DVD or the equivalent. Mark these words. I guarantee you this will happen. We're going to get to see what it was like in heaven just before Jesus vacated heaven. Imagine this. The moment has come and all the angels are getting watched to watch this moment when the second person of the Trinity is now going to leave heaven. He'll come back in 33 years with a body. And so, it's about to happen. I can imagine there would be silence. All the angels present, perhaps, for all I know, sitting on the edges of their seats watching this moment. Perhaps somebody says, by the way, uh, where is Gabriel? Everybody's here but Gabriel. And suddenly, the focus is on a place called Nazareth, where Luke picks up the story in Luke 1.26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Well, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So... The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Silence in heaven. The last moment when the second person of the Godhead waits for the signal. It's over to Mary. What will she do? She replies, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And in that moment, before you could bat an eyelash, the second person of the Godhead entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary and became a man. The Word was made flesh. In hours, Mary goes to see Elizabeth. She can't wait. And when the child is barely uh, uh, 24 hours old, she comes to Elizabeth. And as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, which lets us know that the Son of God was now resident in the Virgin Mary's womb. What does this do to our theology? 
about the sanctity of life. If there's anyone here today, you believe in the sanctity of life, congratulations. And if you've been on the edge and you're wondering, you're wondering how to come to the position that abortion is wrong, it is sin at any age between the time of conception afterward. This should help refine your position where Jesus was now in the womb the first second. But the point is, it was a confirmed decision. He made the decision. He now kept his word. And the word was to become flesh. And as I said, you'll always have a body. As a matter of fact, throughout eternity, Jesus will have that body. You and I will have bodies without any mar, without any scar. Jesus will be the only one in heaven that will have any scar because he will still have the nail prints in his hands. He will have the scar on his side as he showed to Thomas. And throughout eternity, we will be aware of how we got there, that Jesus paid our debt on the cross. All right, it was a confirmed decision. You know, it's one thing to make a decision. It's another thing to honor it and keep it. You know what it is for people in a, an emotional mood to make a decision, and if only they would keep their word. You may get excited here at spring harvest and decide to do this, but what will really matter is three weeks from now, six months from now. When I was at Westminster Chapel, uh, one of the high watermarks of our being there was to have Billy Graham preach for us. One Sunday night, filled the place, 2,000 people or more in Westminster Chapel, and he gave the invitation, and about 100 people came forward, and one in particular stunned those who brought him, who was a well-known figure in central London, and they were so excited, look who's gone forward. And it was wonderful. But a week later, didn't even want to know about it. It didn't last. And so it's one thing for Jesus to say he would become flesh, but he did it. And that is not all. It became the consummate decision, the extreme humility, because we're told, he being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but I love the way the authorized version put it, made himself of no reputation. How many are willing to do that here? Now, could I point out one more time? Paul isn't trying to prove anything about the deity of Jesus. He's not trying to prove anything that's Christological. His point is, you and I should be like this. Do you feel a need to hold on to what you have? What about this idea of making yourself of no reputation? Are you willing to do that? Do you guard your reputation that carefully? Do you take yourself too seriously? Do you have a fear of not getting the proper recognition? Are you afraid that you're not going to get the credit? I don't know if you know this, but when Ronald Reagan was president in the White House, there was a little plaque on his desk. When Harry S. Truman was president, he had a plaque on his desk that said, the buck stops here. When Ronald Reagan was president, he had a little plaque that said, there is no limit to how far a person can go as long as he doesn't care who gets the credit for it. Are you prepared to do something and nobody know about it? Do you feel the need to say, well, just make sure they mention my name and, and they spell it right? Do you need to defend yourself do you need to defend your point of view? And you say you're holding on to the truth. Or could it be your ego that is really at stake? A friend of mine, Pete Cantrell from Oklahoma, uh, used to say, the greatest freedom is having nothing to prove. And it's when you need to prove something all the time. It suggests a bondage. Well... Paul wanted to show 
that Jesus lived without vindicating himself. I want to quote from a verse that you may have read many times and wondered, what on earth does this mean? It's 1 Timothy 3.16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great, that he appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit. This is a very interesting verse, and it will show the key to what Jesus was like. He lived for one thing, and one thing alone, and that was to do what his father told him to do. It was an internal vindication within himself. He knew that his father was pleased with him. That was all he needed. That was all he wanted. Did you know that Jesus was not his own man? He says so. John 5, 19. The son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. So Jesus was not trying to get glory for himself. He was doing everything he did in obedience to the father. And so the Holy Spirit witnessed to him that he was vindicated because he was pleasing the father. This internal vindication where the Holy Spirit has convinced him that you're pleasing the Father. Says Paul, will you be like that? Do you need external vindication? Is it important to you that others see that you've got it right? Are you so insecure that you're not sure whether you've done the right thing or people are going to get aware of what you've done? You're so afraid they won't see the hard work you've done and the credit you deserve. Or is there someone here who will so prize the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit says, you're pleasing me. But you don't have to tell anybody. You don't go around saying, well, God told me that I was in the right. Look, that is external vindication. It is when there is that still small voice that witnesses, just go on. Do not listen to what they say. Do not worry about what they say. I'm pleased with you. Now, that is what Jesus had. And the funny thing is, even after he was raised from the dead, do you know he was not even externally vindicated then? Did you ever wonder why, since he's raised from the dead, you would have thought the first thing he would do is to go to the house of Pontius Pilate on Easter morning and Pilate opens the door and Jesus says, surprise. <laughs> no. He didn't go to Pilate. He didn't go to Herod. He went to Mary Magdalene. He went to those who believed in him. And then after Jesus ascended to heaven, the church now had to live by this internal vindication. They said, prove to us, where is Jesus? You say he's been raised from the dead. Oh, he ascended to heaven to the right hand of God. And the people would laugh them to scorn. You expect us to believe that? And so, what kept them going? They didn't have external vindication. And the point is, when we are being like Jesus, we've got to be willing to be misunderstood. Let them laugh you to scorn. He made himself of no reputation. They said, he sits with sinners. And Jesus would reply, you're sure right about that, and gave the parables to just accentuate the point. It did not matter what they thought. Can I say this lovingly to you? When you stand before God, and one day you will, there is going to be one thing, and one thing alone, that matters. And that is where you hear from the lips of Jesus himself, well done. That will be worth everything in the world. It is worth waiting for. Well, says Paul, be like Jesus now. And this consummate decision was this extreme obedience and humility and death on the cross. God never requires you and me to do anything that Jesus did not do. Everything God asks of us, Jesus did. And he calls us to humility. Jesus humbled himself. And says, Paul, 
He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. By the way, he was man as though he were not God, and yet God as though he were not man. Humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, the NIV says death on a cross, and of course he died on a cross. The Greek literally reads he experienced the death of the cross. What's the difference? Well, death of the cross shows the whole package. It was not only dying on a cross, the whole package, the pain of it, the loss of blood from the scourging. They put spikes into his hands against the slab of wood, hoisted it up in the air, dropped it in a hole in the ground. He was now public property. Anybody could do anything they wanted to him. They could spit on him. They could kick him. He had no defense, and it was legal for them to do anything they wanted to do. The shame of it, the death of the cross. Imagine what it was like when Mary Magdalene is sobbing her heart out at the foot of the cross. She can't understand how this could happen. When she knew what he had done for her, she had been demon-possessed. Seven devils were cast out. Jesus gave her respect that she never had from a man. And she goes with him all the way to the end. And now Mary is sobbing her heart out, and Jesus is not allowed to explain to Mary. If only the Father had given him permission to say, Mary, it's okay. This is, this is supposed to happen. I'm, I'm dying for the sins of the world. He could, part of his pain was not a being allowed to say to Mary something to make her feel better, so it would make him feel better. The humiliation, the pain of the cross, the death of the cross, no retorting, no attempt to explain himself. But all of this behind the scenes was that you and I might have a home in heaven, and then the Spirit of God do work in us on our way to heaven to make us more like Jesus. And never forget one other thing, what was happening on that Good Friday. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, said, there are two words you need to have in your theological vocabulary, substitution and satisfaction. Why these two words? First, substitution. Jesus was our substitute. He took our place and took our punishment. And so we deserve the punishment for our sins. God punished Jesus. But that's not all. The blood that he shed from his hands, his feet, from his forehead, cried out for justice. And the blood satisfied God's justice. That was the purpose of the cross. And so, with us, let this mind be in us that we would fulfill the purpose God has for each one of us. I repeat, He has a plan for you as if there were no one else. He loves you as if there were no one else to love. And you will know that purpose to the degree that you make yourself like Him. Let this mind be in you. Well, in the few moments that I have left, how does Paul apply this? He says in verse 12, Wherefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there have been those who thought, well, that shows that we are saved by works. Uh, but Paul didn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. Had he said that, he would have repudiated everything else he taught. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work it out. For example, Paul says, I'm not there in Philippi to answer every question you have. Uh, and we, to this day, have questions. We think, 
Oh, I wonder what Paul would say of this. Uh, is it all right to read the Sunday newspaper printed on Saturday, but you've been buying it on Sunday? Oh, can you buy it on Monday, though it was printed on Sunday? Work it out. You decide. Is it all right to have a glass of wine? Some say yes, some say no. Paul says, you work it out. Should I go to a cinema or not? You work it out. How should I use my money? You work it out. I'm not there to answer your every question. And all of us face this all the time. And God puts us on our honor. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the good news. For it is God who works in you and to act according to his pleasure. How comforting to know that God is at work in all that is happening. But then he gives this advice. Here's the way he wants to apply this passage in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. What's the difference? Complaining. That's when you initiate negative talk. Complaining is when you start it. Paul says, don't do it. Arguing is when you defend yourself against criticism. Paul says, don't do it. Never forget, as it was put in Isaiah, as a lamb before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. I think one of the most brilliant moments in the life of Jesus is when he came before Herod. And Herod was so glad to see him. He says, I want you to perform a miracle for me. What do you think about that? And Jesus just stood there and looked. It infuriated Herod. And then he's before Pilate. And he wouldn't answer. The security not to have to say anything. You know the phrase, silence is golden. That's what it was. When you just don't have a need to say anything. You've got nothing to prove. And here is the thing. There is something God does so well. Now, when I say it that way, it implies some things he doesn't do so well. But listen, there's something he does so brilliantly. It's what he does best, if I may put it that way. And guess what it is? It is the matter of vindicating. God loves to vindicate. If you're here today and you long for vindication, I understand that. I know what it's like. I lived with it for all those years. You know, what happened was when I became a pastor of a church, I was 19 years old. I was uh, at Trevecca Nazarene College in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was given a little church out in the country, 110 miles from Nashville, and my grandmother said, well, he's going to need a car, and I was the first Kendall in the family to be a preacher, so my grandmother bought me a brand new car, 1955 Chevrolet. Oh, I was so proud of that. But a year later, my theology changed, and my direction changed. She took the car back. And all I was doing was trying to please the Lord. And I longed for vindication. It was a long time before I got it, and perhaps you today, you've taken your stand. You believe you were right. I have this to say, if you were right, God will clear your name in his time. You say, I know R.T., but he can be so slow. <laughs> I know. But do not rob him of the joy he gets when in the right time he clears your name. And until that day, just remember, be like him. Your day will come, and it came for Jesus. Because, says Paul, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will be his external vindication. 
every knee shall bow. Saddam Hussein will get on his knees and say, Jesus is Lord. Won't save him, but he'll have to say it. Adolf Hitler will get on his knees and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Won't save him, but he'll have to say it. And all those who scoff and laugh, if they're not saved before then, will still have to confess. Trouble is, it's too late then. All people have one thing in common. Everybody's going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's only a matter of when. Some do it then when it's too late. We do it now. And it doesn't matter what they think. We're willing to be of no reputation because our day is coming. I close. Don't rob God of doing what he does best. Declare your name. And then one day, God will clear his name, and all our questions will be answered. May we pray. Heavenly Father, give us grace to remember your word when you said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Heal our bruised egos. Thank you for your patience with us. Give us another chance not to take ourselves so seriously. Heavenly Father, take this word, apply this word by your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.